This paper was read in Fatima last October the 12th, 1981, by the French Carmelite theologian, Father Joseph de Sainte-Marie, to a group of pilgrims representing the Association of St. Benedict, patron of Europe. It's a synthesis of a fuller development of the significance of the Fatima message, which he hopes to have published shortly. In this translation, I have tried to make the text sound as English as possible, but inevitably the complexity of French ways of thought and expression break through again and again. I hope, however, that some of the thoughts expressed by Father Joseph may be helpful to students of the Fatima phenomenon. Let us begin with an historical survey. We must first of all become aware of one of the paradoxes of Fatima, that the ensemble of the facts is at one and the same time extremely simple and extremely complex. Simple because the message can be summed up in these few words. God wishes to establish devotion to Mary's immaculate heart throughout the world. In one sense, that says everything there is to be said. So much for the simplicity of Fatima. At the same time, however, it is extremely complex. For this unique message, revealed in 1917, has since become progressively developed. We need to follow and study this development. And for that it is necessary to have historical documents, not all of which are accessible. It is also necessary to examine them critically, in order to evaluate them properly. And that, it must be acknowledged, is a very delicate problem. This is a question above all for the specialists, but you will appreciate that it is necessary to see both aspects at the same time. On the one hand, everything is there in the initial nucleus of Fatima. On the other hand, starting off from this nucleus, everything develops, including our enlightenment. This unfolding is most important for an understanding of Fatima. I shall now recall the facts of Fatima. For many people, these consist principally of the six apparitions of the Virgin Mary from May the 13th until October the 13th, 1917. But we must remember that those were preceded by six apparitions of an angel. Three of those were veiled, silent apparitions, and in the other three, the angel appeared as a young man who delivered a message of great significance. We may look at the Fatima story as a triptych. The center panel consists of the six apparitions of the Blessed Virgin. On the left, we had the angelic preparation. On the right, what follows after, and in particular, Lucy's mission. 
the words which precede and succeed the central message enable us to understand better what Our Lady actually said. We must see these three pictures simultaneously. But we can go still further. This triptych is not something rigid. It is a movement which can be traced back through history. It resembles the history of, sal of salvation itself. There, too, we see the preparation for our Lord's coming, then the thirty-three years of his life, and finally the accomplishment of his work in the history of the Church. The parallel is striking. The angelic preparation, the message of Our Lady, and finally the accomplishment of the message by means of God's chosen instrument, Sister Lucy. And at this point I must underline an important point because, as you know, there are students of Fatima who say we accept what Our Lady said in 1917 but not the rest which are inventions of Sister Lucy. Why is this attitude itself unacceptable? Because on June the 13th, 1917, Our Lady said to Lucy, God wishes to use you to make me better known and loved. He wishes to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart. Thus, on June the 13th, Lucy was chosen by Our Lady as witness to her message, as prophet of the will of God. The message she received was not a canonical, but a prophetic mission. It is on this word of Our Lady, this mission entrusted to Sister Lucy, that we base our belief in the importance of all that Lucy has said during the third phase concerning the fulfilment of Our Lady's demands. Having thus established the historical basis of our reflections, let us now consider the message itself as we find it in the words spoken by Our Lady. The essence of the message is to be found in the Declaration of July the 13th. In order to save souls, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart. If what I tell you is done, many souls will be saved, and there will be peace. That is the main point. If we analyse this, we see that it contains a basic doctrinal truth and an appeal. The truth is the role of Mary as mediatrix. Only I can help you. God wishes everything to depend on the mediation of Mary. This is the dogmatic truth which lies at the heart of the Fatima message. And the appeal, which is the practical outcome of this truth, to be saved 
and to obtain peace, we must go to Mary practicing the devotion which she has asked for. Around this kernel, two other truths, two other aspects emerge. The first is a warning of the utmost gravity. Our Lady denounces sin, which is the cause of misfortune in the world. And the second is both a promise and a prophecy. But in the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. Let me resume this in four points. First, an initial warning of danger which threatens the world on account of sin. Second, the evangelical truth underlying the appeal of Mary. She is the mediatrix who alone can save us from sin and its consequences. Third, the appeal itself, go to Mary and practice this devotion. Fourth, promise of a happy outcome. In the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. There, I think, we have the real message of Fatima. It is quite brief, but as we reflect on it, we see that these few words are of dazzling richness and limitless depth, the very depth of the gospel. For the message of Fatima is indeed the gospel message passing through Mary's immaculate heart. So let us now reflect briefly on each of these four points. Point one, the warning in regard to sin. This appears also in the words of the angel. The supreme evil in the world, the one most to be feared, is sin. All the rest, poverty, suffering, conflicts, wars and so on, and above all death, are but a consequence of sin. What we must fear is not so much the consequence of sin, however much these risk becoming apocalyptic in our time, as sin itself. Sin is the cause of the loss of souls, of wars and catastrophes in the world. This is what the Virgin denounces and warns us against. And among all these sins, the endless litany, the ocean of sins in the world, there is one primary sin. What is this primary sin? Its modern name is atheism. It is the rejection of God. And this atheism of the masses, this organized, militant, conquering atheism, which constitutes a new phenomenon in the history of mankind, is none other than the ultimate working out in all its consequences of the original sin of Adam and Eve, which constituted the first negation of God. 
The first sin which the Blessed Virgin denounces at Fatima is, therefore, the sin of atheism. This general sin, which is the common source of all the sins of the world. Notice that the Virgin speaks of sins committed against her immaculate heart. This expression demands an explanation for sin is usually considered an offence against God. The psalmist says in Psalm 50, Against thee only have I sinned. Yes, sin is an offence against God. But God suffers through the heart of Christ, the incarnate word. Sin affects God through the flesh in the humanity of Christ which is inseparable from the Immaculate Virgin in whom the Word was made flesh. Thus sin wounds God in the humanity of Christ, from whom the Blessed Virgin Mary can never be separated. And so sin may be said to wound Mary's Immaculate Heart. At the same time, as it wounds her son's sacred heart. Atheism is the fundamental sin which affects both Christ and Mary. Hence the special role of Russia in the Fatima warning. And, I must emphasize, of communist Russia. For although the Blessed Virgin said Russia, I shall not say simply Russia, for this could refer to Holy Russia and its Christian vocation. Nor shall I say simply communism, for communism is now a worldwide phenomenon, and it has also another head, China. All that is implicit in the Fatima message. But I say communist Russia, Russia insomuch as it is the instrument chosen by Satan to establish his empire throughout the world. To counter this sin of communist Russia and to save the world, including Russia, from communism, the Blessed Virgin will demand the consecration of Russia to her Immaculate Heart. You see the link which I make between the root sin which is atheism and the sin of communist Russia, which is the instrument of militant atheism to establish in the world the reign of Satan in the place of the reign of Christ. We have considered the warning so far with reference to what it says about sin. But we must remember that the Blessed Virgin also spoke of war, in 1917 she foretold the peace of 1918. She also foretold the war of 1939-45. to 45. What followed was the famous third part of the message which remains a secret. We do not know what it contains, but certain precise clues, which I shall refer to later, and above all the internal logic of what we do know, allow us to guess with some assurance that this third part of the secret could be the foretelling of a third world war.
simply because atheism has not ceased to spread, especially by the action of communist Russia, and because Mary's requests have not been heeded. You notice that I have dealt at some length with this warning. The sin of atheism, the instrument for the spread of which is communist Russia, leads to wars and cataclysms. That is what Our Lady said, and we can see the truth of it today. The remedy, and the only remedy, and we must impress this upon the Church today and upon the world, the only remedy against sin and its consequences is in the Immaculate Heart of Mary. It is contained in the response to her demands at Fatima. You see how I proceed from the warning to the appeal and from the appeal to the response. They are inseparable. After these observations on the warning, we must pass on to the appeal with which it is intimately linked. A warning of danger is generally followed by a suggested course of action. We shall understand this appeal better if we consider first its evangelical and theological basis, and second, that it is contained in the words, I alone can save you. I have developed this theme at much greater length in the text which has provided the basis of this paper and which will be published in due course. Let me now examine briefly just two ideas. First, the mediation of Mary. This question, as you know, was discussed in the Council and the objection made was drawn from St. Paul in his first letter to Timothy. Unus Mediator. There is one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ. To understand how this unique mediation of Christ does not supplant other mediations subordinate to his, we must turn to St. Thomas Aquinas. He shows it admirably. Let us begin by establishing a fact. Did Jesus Christ institute a priestly ministry, yes or no? Yes, he did establish a ministerial priesthood. And does not a priest mediate between the people of God, the faithful, and those who are baptized, and Christ? Yes, the priest is a mediator. There, then, is fact number one. What St. Thomas establishes is the existence of mediators not separate from Christ, but in Christ, not in addition to the unique mediation of Christ, but through the power of this unique mediation, one which is other yet the same, the mediation of the ministerial priesthood and the sacraments. Therefore, it is not a question for discussion it is a fact requiring acknowledgement that there is one sole mediator and that subordinate mediators are included in the richness of this unique mediation. And thus we can already understand how the unique mediation of Christ 
does not suppress that of Mary. She is indeed the foundation and the source of his mediation. She is the interior nucleus that nourishes it. It is therefore necessary to refuse to acknowledge that there is a dilemma, either one sole mediator or many mediators. It is necessary to affirm that deriving from the one mediation, Christ's, there are numerous subordinate mediations. Thus, Mary is a mediatrix to make available the richness of her son's mediation. And today, she is the only mediatrix who can make available the richness of the mediation of Christ the Word, who became incarnate within her. Only in the sense employed by her, which becomes more easily understood from what follows. The second idea we must recall here is that Our Lady finds herself between Christ and the Church. She does not in any way suppress the ecclesial mediations of the Pope, Bishops, Hierarchy, Sacraments, and so on. On the contrary, she points to them. She herself is placed in another, a complementary order. And it is she who will give fullness to the many and various institutions within the Church for the salvation of souls. The Eucharist has pride of place here. At Fatima, as also at Lourdes, and indeed everywhere, the first thing Our Lady does is to lead people to Christ via priests in the Eucharist. That, then, is the second point. It is thus that we must understand what Our Lady means when she affirms that she alone can save us. She does not substitute herself for Christ. She does not put herself in place of him. Nor does she pretend to replace the Church and its institutions. On the contrary, what she is telling us is that it is Christ's will to manifest the power of his grace by means of her immaculate heart. And she tells us that the Church will not accomplish its mission unless it entrusts itself to her immaculate heart. Christ, Mary, the Church, for the salvation of souls, for world peace and God's glory. Such is the vision which is at the heart of Fatima. It is the whole gospel. It is also what the surest theology tells us. Thus you can see that at the heart of the message and at the root of the consecration demanded by Mary and of the devotion which he wishes us to live, there lies that great truth which God wants to triumph today, the truth on which theologians are working, which is known as the doctrine of Mary, mediatrix of all graces, or the universal mediation of Mary. 
or you may call it more simply, the universal maternity of Mary. Mediation, maternity, it is the same reality. Christ gives his life only through Mary. With these thoughts you may see the extraordinary richness of the simple words spoken by Mary to the children. Therein is the truth which is at the foundation of the entire Fatima message. The third point is the appeal. We have already noted its contents and would now repeat its following essential features. Go to Mary in order to live your conversion. For this appeal which the Virgin makes to us is the appeal of the Gospel. The beginning of St. Matthew's Gospel is particularly clear. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Be converted, return to God, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the gospel message, and there is the appeal of Fatima, for Mary has never done other than remind us of the gospel. But she reminds us of it according to the will of Christ himself, in telling us this, this conversion which Jesus, my Son, asks of you, you must do it, and you cannot do it as he wishes it today, except by coming to me, and by establishing yourself by faith in my heart, in other words, through my mediation, through my maternity. This conversion, which means living as a Christian, can only be achieved through me. This is God's will, not mine. Such is the appeal of Fatima, an appeal for this devotion, which is the Christian life. And I wish to point out that when Our Lady said, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart, she virtually said, God wishes me to reign in the world. In passing, let me say something about this word devotion. It is not a question of some simple practice of piety, however eminently respectable. It is necessary to have respect for souls, and it is, necessary not, and it is certainly not my intention to despise sound devotional practices, which are so dear to the Christian way of life but we must look further towards the fullness of evangelical life. What it is necessary to understand is the full significance of the word devotion. It derives from the Latin vovere, devovere, which means dedication or consecration. Full devotion, therefore, implies full consecration to Mary, and full consecration to Mary is the means of enabling her 
to reign in our hearts and in the world. Such, then, is Our Lady's appeal. It asks us to live the gospel life in conversion of conversion through Mary, which we can do by consecrating ourselves to her and allowing her to reign in us. This is a program which affects every aspect of our lives. This is something for all Christians. It is the universal appeal of Fatima to overcome the sins of all men and above all the fundamental sin of atheism. And we must note that alongside this universal sin there is the principal instrument for the spread of this sin, Russia. Hence the special nature of the Fatima appeal for the consecration of communist Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. This has to be done by the Pope together with all the bishops of the world. The consecrations performed so far have not fulfilled the demands of Our Lady. Not even the most solemn consecration made by Pius XII in 1942, important though it was. It certainly marked a turning point in the history of Europe. But it was the consecration of the whole world and by the Pope on his own, not of Russia, by the Pope with all the bishops. It has occurred to me frequently that the collegial aspect of the apostolic hierarchy, once more brought to light by the Second Vatican Council, could and must be the cause of great good, despite the fact which must be faced, for it is only truth which liberates, that this bringing again to light of the value of collegiality has so far occasioned many abuses and been the cause of great evils. And I think one may see in collegiality a preparation for this collegial action on the part of the Pope and all the bishops in consecrating Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. I say that in passing. But what must be stressed is the call for consecration. For let me emphasize once more, there is on the one hand the universal appeal for consecration addressed to all the baptized, and on the other hand the special appeal that concerns the hierarchy. And I say once more, why is the world today in such chaos, with terrorism continually spreading? Why is the world in all probability on the eve of apocalyptic catastrophes? It is because there has been no effective response to the will of God, which was made manifest by Our Lady of Fatima, uh, and thereafter by means of various communications to Sister Lucy. You see now the vital and crucial importance of this Fatima appeal. This is the essence of my reflections. All that I shall say subsequently 
from the historical, prophetic or theological point of view, will be no more than arguments for sustaining and justifying a decision by the hierarchy, and first of all by helping it to be understood that by the fulfilment of this divine demand made manifest at Fatima, and by it alone may the world be saved, and that everything else is, as John of the Cross says, a mere beating of the air. All else is vain and a waste of time. All that is done towards establishing peace in the world, apart from the response to Our Lady's requests at Fatima, will be in vain and will end in failure. For if God has let his will be known in this way, it is not for men to seek alternative means. This appeal, therefore, is really the essential thing about Fatima. Next, and above all, we must discover, through this appeal, what devotion to Our Lady implies, for therein will be found the spiritual significance of the Fatima message, life consecrated to Mary, life in Mary. Unfortunately, I cannot develop this theme here and must leave you to meditate on it for yourselves. I shall, however, return to it later. So I pass on to my fourth point, the announcement and the promise of final victory. I must emphasize this fourth point because of its severity and gravity and its tragic aspect. The Fatima message nonetheless remains a message of immense hope. Note the manner in which Our Lady announces this final victory, but in the end my immaculate heart will triumph. Why the but? Because Our Lady knew that much time would elapse before her demands would be fulfilled. And why in the end? Because in the meanwhile, during the period of refusal and waiting, sin would increase with all its tragic consequences. You see, therefore, how in this announcement of final victory there is also contained an announcement of the sufferings which await mankind, a warning of the chastisements, if we may use this biblical word, which threaten us. Our Lady sees all that. Often those who meditate on the Fatima message are tempted to stop short at the aspect of sufferings and to see only catastrophes ahead, which is neither good, nor healthy, nor Christian. We must keep our eyes on the cross. We must meditate on the passion of Christ. But we must do so in the light of Easter and the Resurrection. And that is exactly what Our Lady is helping us to do with her promise. But in the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. It is this announcement of final victory which makes the Fatima message a message of hope, a message of victory. It is in this hope, awakened by the prophetic words of Our Lady, that we find the strength and perseverance necessary to continue the Christian struggle day by day.
this Christian struggle, which, let us have no illusions, will get more and more difficult as the world plunges deeper into atheism. And persecution which is raging in the countries of Eastern Europe will come to punish us in the West because we have not responded to God's will to save ourselves through his mother's heart. That is why, in the immediate future, we are presented with the cross of the Church. But this cross appears to us in the light of the resurrection, which is why I say that the message of Fatima is a message of hope, of peace, of strength, even of joy, because it is a message of eventual victory, and because this victory will be the victory of love. That is the significance of the word heart. My heart will triumph means love will triumph. It will triumph by means of the patience of the saints. As we are told in the Apocalypse, by means of the fidelity of the faithful, through our strength and constancy in bearing the cross which Jesus presents to us, each of us bearing his own, and the whole church also bearing its cross. So you see the importance of pondering this final prophetic announcement, for it places the whole message and mystery of Fatima in the paschal light of Christ. Such then, my dear friends, are the thoughts developed in the first part of this talk, or rather in the study which I made to prepare it. And as I speak to you with an attentive eye on my watch, in order not to tax your patience unduly, you will understand why the second part of my talk must develop more rapidly. But I would like to try to present you with the essential ideas, for they are extremely important. We have already examined the message and its theological foundations. What I am going to do now is to make a more profound examination of its theological implications. I shall try to achieve it by dealing with three points which concern three extremely important questions. The first concerns the Church's obligation to listen and respond to the demands of Our Lady at Fatima. I know that here we are on rather delicate ground. I hope I have not been lacking in theological and pastoral prudence and that I have said nothing which is not grounded with assurance in the most certain doctrine of tradition and in the Church's magisterium. You will understand the need for these somewhat solemn precautions when you read the text of my book, for the question at issue is relatively new and still under discussion. Does the Church have an obligation to listen to the demands of Our Lady? Yes or no? If you ask an ordinary member of the Church, he will probably reply with the common sense of faith, but of course, and he will be quite right. For, after all, if the Mother of God goes out of her way to speak to us, 
the very least we must do is to obey her as our mother. Whether we be the humblest lay brother, or an office clerk, or even up himself, in relation to the mother of God, we are all equally Mary's children. And if she gives us instructions, we should obey them. There is, nevertheless, a difficulty in demonstrating this obligation of obedience to the Blessed Virgin. It derives, first of all, from the fact that these messages from Mary are something relatively recent in the history of the Church. They date back only to the 19th century. Before then, it is true, there was the message of the Sacred Heart. And going still further back through history, it can be seen that ever since the Acts of the Apostles, there have been prophecies in the Church. And if we use this word prophecy, we may find an answer to our first question and a fresh approach to resolve the problem. For up to now, the difficulty experienced in this matter consisted in the fact that everything outside the Gospel revelation, the deposit of faith, which alone is the object of theological faith and of baptismal faith, all else was thought of as being in the category of private revelations made to privileged souls. And concerning these private revelations, one was more or less free to believe or not to believe, to accept or to reject them. The privileged person concerned may have an obligation to believe what has been revealed to him, but certain theologians would not insist even on this, astonishing though this may seem. And that is as far as theologians would go. The teachings of the popes from Benedict the Fourteenth to Pius the Tenth was that the Church allows one to believe, with human faith only, the messages of these revelations given in private apparitions. For some time, however, Deo Gratias, theologians such as Père Balic, President of the International Marian Academy in Rome, and bishops and cardinals such as the Cardinal Patriarch of Lisbon, responsible for Fatima, in short, voices of considerable authority have been heard to say, but that is not enough. If God speaks in this way, Something more is needed than simple human faith and freedom of choice as to the response. How to formulate this something more theologically, that is the difficulty. These may be private revelations communicated to individuals for their personal good. But there are also public prophecies given to the Church affecting its conduct and the conduct of its members. If we now turn to the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles of St. Paul, we find astonishing words like the following from the letter to the Ephesians, where the Church is referred to as built upon the foundation 
of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now the content indicates that what is meant here is prophets of the New Testament. And if we take the Acts as a whole, and if we reread the history of the Church, we notice that alongside apostolic charismata, that is to say of the hierarchical priestly ministry, there have always been prophetic charismata to back up, guide, and direct the apostolic ministry in its mission. Such is the essential truth. Let us add that the hierarchy and the prophet are both subordinate to the word of God, to the gospel of Christ, but in different and complementary ways. It is true that ultimate authority belongs to the hierarchy, to the bishop, to the Pope. However, the Pope must listen to the prophet. St. Paul says, Extinguish not the spirit, despise not prophecies, but prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. These are the words of the New Testament. This is the will of God on the basis of which one can and must affirm that prophecy is integral to the economy, to the conduct of the people of the new covenant, and that prophecy is essential to the life of the church. It is so in the following way. The priest, the pontiff, must discern whether the words of the prophet are of God. But once he has judged and recognized that a given prophecy is indeed from God, then he must obey, not as obeying the prophet, but as obeying God, whose instrument the prophet is. This, I think, is the theological way of showing that one is not free when faced with a prophetic message once it has been recognized as divine in origin. But on the contrary, that it is a duty to receive it and submit to it. That is why, very reverend fathers and dear friends, it is the duty of the Pope and the bishops to obey Our Lady and to fulfil the demands she made at Fatima. It is one of their pastoral and apostolic obligations. These problems, as I have said, have as yet been little studied Theological reflection on this matter is still exploratory. That is why the thesis proposed in my written text seems to me of great importance, both for its general implications and for its bearing on the message, that is to say, the public prophecy of Fatima. If this message comes from God, then the Church must receive it and submit to it. But since the Church has for some time recognized the message of Fatima as coming from God, it must therefore fulfill its demands as a matter of urgency. This, then, is the first question to be clarified. 
and we find ourselves on the side of good Christian common sense. If Our Lady has indeed spoken, then we must obviously obey her. But let us not forget the weight of responsibility resting on authority, which has to weigh its actions carefully and must act only when it has the assurance of obeying God. It is the humble but indispensable work of the theologian to propose to the hierarchy his considered opinion of which the hierarchy is also the judge, the object of theological reflection being to help the hierarchy in its work of arriving at this assurance of truth. And now we come to the second and third questions, which are certainly the most fascinating and the most illuminating. I can only touch on them lightly now, and I would refer you to my forthcoming book for a more profound examination of them. What is the central truth? It is that Mary is the mediatrix of all graces. The time has come when God wants the whole world to recognize Mary's role in the history of salvation. That is at the heart of Fatima and all the many other interventions of Our Lady, but especially that of Fatima. I shall try to demonstrate this in two complementary ways, through history, the second question, and through theology, the third question, the latter being the most illuminating but also the most difficult. Let us examine how this truth of the mediation of Mary appears in the history of the 20th century in the West. For the history of the world has been dominated by the West from the time of Christ until the 20th century. In the 16th century there emerges the drama of the revolt over which God wishes to triumph by means of Mary's mediation. In order to demonstrate this, certain historical study is required. It is necessary to study the parallel development, on the one hand of the rising tide of atheism in the modern world, and on the other hand of a multiplicity of prophetic voices given by God to the Church in order to contain the sin. What we discover in the course of this historical study is the vision given in chapter 12 of the Apocalypse. Fatima is the woman clothed with the sun. The miracle of October the 13th, 1917. Communism is the red dragon of the denial of God, the red star of Moscow. Is it not obvious that the 20th century is the story of this battle between the woman of the apocalypse on the one hand and the red dragon of communist atheism of the East and the practical atheism of the West on the other hand? For these are brother enemies but also brothers in arms. East and West are joined in this common negation of God. 
it is this history which we must now retrace. I simply propose to use certain dates, modifying somewhat the presentation of my text. We must begin at the 16th century, which in the textbooks of history and literature is regarded as the beginning of modern times. The 16th century is the age of humanism and also of the Lutheran drama of the Protestant revolt. Humanism was, admittedly, a cultural movement, but it was also a return to paganism under the colour of culture. As for Luther, he was at the very beginning of the division of Christian Europe. He was the great divider. Gott ist im Himmel, du bist auf Erden. God's in his heaven, you are on earth. Between heaven and earth, Luther establishes an impassable abyss. He denies all mediations. In the end, Luther, who talks so much about Christ, denies the mediation of Christ's humanity. He denies the mediation of Christ's mother, his co-mediatrix. Therein lies the essential significance of the 16th century, the affirmation of man, of the rupture between heaven and earth by the denial of the mediations which unite them. Christ, Mary, and above all the Church. Such is the beginning of the revolt of modern times against God. Faced with this attack, the Church replied through the hierarchy, through the Council of Trent, and by means of a galaxy of saints, St. Ignatius, St. Teresa, St. John of the Cross, St. Peter of Alcantara, and so on. It was through them that the prophetic charisma was realized and superabundantly exercised. During the 17th century, the evil continued to spread. Whereas the 16th century had been the golden century of Spain with Charles V and the great glories of Spain, the 17th was the Grand Siècle of France. The evil originated in Germany with the spread of Protestantism. Then it spread to France. There it took root within the Church under the form of Jansenism, a sort of Catholic rehash of Protestantism and especially of Calvinism, which had the effect of freezing the very heart of Christ. And it was at that point that occurred the first prophecy of modern times, the revelations of the Sacred Heart to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque in 1675. They took place at Paris Lemonial, and they represent an event in the history of the Church which was, at one and the same time, both old and new. 
old because prophecy had always been a factor, and new because of the form it took. In response to the denial of his love, Christ came himself once more to open his heart to us, and he did so by means of his apparition to a young nun and through the prophetic message conveyed to her. Just as in the 17th century we had the apparition of prophecy centred on the heart of Christ, so in the 20th century Fatima is the continuation of Paradimonial. It is the revelation of Mary's heart in union with the heart of Christ. And God in his mercy granted this gift to his church because it had not responded properly to Christ's appeal and because in consequence the revolt had continued to cause havoc. The 18th century saw a further expansion of rebellion which reached its climax in the French Revolution. The first great act of organized political rebellion against God It was a consequence of the negation and ruptures of the 16th century and of the cooling of faith in the 17th century and of the exaltation of reason in the 18th and also of the exploitation of this revolt by the power of Freemasonry which had been founded in 1717. Now consider these dates. 1517, the revolt of Luther. 1717, the foundation of Freemasonry. 1917, the birth of Bolshevism and the response of God through Mary's Immaculate Heart at Fatima. I have anticipated a little in order to show this striking series of dates to which, of course, many other events could be added. But going back to the 18th century, we see the French Revolution as the work of masonry which had come into being at the beginning of that century and as the exaltation of reason. In other words, we see man rejecting God so as to become his own master and to be entirely self-sufficient. This rending of Christian Europe by means of the revolution was accomplished through the frightful if glorious epic of Napoleon who sowed revolt throughout Europe destroying kingdoms and wrecking Christendom. And the beginning of the 19th century was also a catastrophe for the church and for the faith. However, it was then that the series of great prophecies began. In 1830, at the Rue du Bac, with the miraculous medal and the invocation, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Thus, from the beginning, these prophecies were under the sign of the Immaculate Conception. And in the middle of the century, in 1854, there came the definition of this dogma. And four years later, Our Lady herself, 
appeared at Lourdes to confirm the action of the vicar of her son by declaring to young Bernadette on March the 25th, 1858, I am the Immaculate Conception. 1830, 1854, 1858. So it was that the 19th century ushered in the era of Mary Immaculate into both the Church and the world. Passing on quickly, as we must, to the 20th century, we have the great turning point of 1917. Yes, another point which I shall develop in my book. The turning point which is, at one and the same time, the outcome of, and a new point of departure for, not only this entire process of revolution, but also the whole of this prophetic revelation. After the consecration of the human race to the Sacred Heart by Leo XIII in 1899, and the subsequent non-cooperation by men, God could tolerate no more. He could no longer permit men's crimes to go without chastisement. Yet neither could he cease to seek to spare us through pure mercy. And when men had refused to respond, or had given insufficient response to the appeal of his son's heart, he sent them his mother. The heart of Christ somehow withdrew behind the heart of Mary. This was the great turning point of 1917. Let it be noted at the very moment when, as a consequence of the Bolshevik victory, the Red Dragon emerged at one end of Europe in Leningrad, then still Petrograd, at the other end of Europe at Fatimwa, there appeared the woman clothed with the sun, the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Such was the miracle of October the 13th, 1917, the miracle of the sun, a miracle which calls for an entire book to itself. But, dear friends, remember the sun is the symbol of Christ. And as you know, this miracle of the sun was renewed four times at the Vatican for Pius XII in 1950, when he defined the doctrine of the Assumption, which is the dogma of Mary taken up into heaven of Mary assumed by Christ, the dogma of the woman totally reclaimed by the Son of Justice and established by him in glory and in the power of his kingship as Son of both heaven and earth. You can therefore see the relationship between Fatima and the dogma of the Assumption. That is why it can and must be affirmed that with Fatima, but also with this date, 1950, right in the middle of the 20th century, with these two dates, which are inseparable, there began, as an extension of the era of the Immaculate in the 19th century, the era of the Assumption, the era of the woman clothed with the sun. This, then, is the message of Fatima, in all its glorious brilliance, 
in all its salvific power. Alas, we are now in 1981 and still the world has not responded to this glorious queen established in the sun. It is not even yet understood that Christ, the Son, does not wish to give us his life-giving, victory-giving rays other than through Mary's immaculate heart. That is why mankind is sinking ever deeper into sin and running headlong towards catastrophe. It is because it is not yet understood that Christ wishes to reign only through Mary. My conclusion is as follows. The message has been given. Sister Lucy has suffered a sort of martyrdom since 1917 because there has been so little effective response to Our Lady's demands. We must therefore meditate on the message and concentrate our attention on the heart of Mary and her appeal, which is not an abstract appeal, but the appeal of, her mother's, of our mother's heart. We must look towards her, listen to her, and hear what she says to us all. Come to my heart, for only by so doing will you be converted and become sufficiently steadfast in the battles which await you and able for the crosses which you must bear. This is her appeal to all of us, and this appeal is for the theologians and for those in positions of responsibility, as well as for every Christian called to the apostolate. Listen to me, she says, but also make my appeal heard. And I think especially of the appeal to the hierarchy, to the Pope and all the bishops. Consecrate Russia to me, and you will have peace. For Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, wishes to give it to you through me alone and through my heart he will give himself to you. Finally, a word of practical advice. For people often wonder what the Pope and the bishops are waiting for before responding to this appeal. Dear friends, what they are waiting for is that each of us should individually obey Our Lady. For the graces of enlightenment and strength, the extraordinary graces which the Pope, first of all, and above all, but also the bishops, require to perform this act, which is unheard of and unthinkable at present, in present-day circumstances. These graces, I realize only too well, can be obtained by us through prayer. Thus, what is humanly impossible will become possible through the grace of God. Through these extraordinary graces which will permit the hierarchy to obey Our, Our Lady. These graces will be merited by the sum total of efforts, prayer and sacrifices on the part of all Christians, on the part of the entire Church. My conclusion is therefore very practical. 
Let there be no hysteria concerning dates or concerning expectation of chastisement. The dates are unknown, the chastisement certain. The practical conclusion for all of us is to look towards the heart of our mother. And we are going to begin doing so immediately, which will be a point of departure. It will be a point of departure from your hearing Our Lady's appeal. And my joy will derive from having contributed towards this. It will be a point of departure in that having heard Our Lady's appeal, you will learn to make each succeeding day's response increasingly effective. My talk is offered to you, among so many other things, in order to help you to make it a point of departure for learning to respond to Mary. It is from the efforts of the entire Church, from the prayer and sacrifice of each one of us, that there will come the movement and the graces necessary to permit the Pope and the successors of the Apostles to make this liberating consecration. It is then that Mary's heart will triumph. It is then that peace will be given to Russia and, starting with Russia, to the entire world. It is then that Mary will be proclaimed mediatrix of all graces. It is then that renewal will come, a veritable renewal, not a renewal that is false and calculated to deceive. It is then that there will come the true renewal promised by God in the entire Church and throughout the entire world to the greater glory of the hearts of Christ and Mary and of God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Several weeks before Pope John Paul II's visit to Fatima on May 13, 1982, most bishops were informed that it was the Holy Father's intention to renew the two acts of consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary made by Pope Pius XII, and this new act was to be in spiritual union with all the bishops of the world. The Holy Father did make this consecration on May 13, 1982, under the title of An Act of Entrusting. But the full significance of this action can only be appreciated with reference to the acts of consecration made by his predecessors, and in particular those made by Pope Pius XII. Pope Pius XII had consecrated the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary on October 31, 1942, with special reference to those people, and I quote, in whose homes an honoured place was ever accorded thy venerable icon. And on July 17, 1952, he consecrated Russia explicitly to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, on both occasions, however, the bishops throughout the world did not participate, as had been requested by Our Lady of Fatima. On November 21, 1964, 
Pope Paul VI repeated the consecrations in the presence of the Council Fathers, but without their active participation. By contrast, Pope John Paul II's consecration, or act of entrusting, was clearly intended to be in spiritual union with all the bishops of the Church. For, in the wording of the consecration, the Holy Father particularly states, and I quote, that particular bond whereby we constitute a body and a college. And later he says, In the bond of this union I utter the words of the present act. Furthermore, in his homily on May 13, 1982, the same day, Pope John Paul specifically recalled what had been done by his predecessors when they consecrated the world to the Immaculate Heart of the Mother, when they consecrated especially to that heart those people which particularly need to be consecrated. And he had previously made explicit reference to Pope Pius XII who had consecrated the human race and especially the peoples of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Moreover, Pope John Paul's act of entrusting itself recalls that 40 years ago and again 10 years later your servant Pope Pius XII entrusted and consecrated to your Immaculate Heart the whole world, especially those people for which you had particular love and solicitude. Adding in a later paragraph, In a special way we entrust and consecrate to you those individuals and nations which particularly need to be entrusted and consecrated. Therefore, even although Pope John Paul's consecration does not include the word Russia, since his homily and the consecration cannot be dissociated, one cannot deny that the peoples of Russia are specifically indicated in the consecration, this time intended to be fully collegial with the bishops. One must also consider this consecration in relation to Sister Lucia's letter to Pope Pius XII, dated October 24, 1940, in which she stated that our good Lord had himself, in several intimate communications, indicated that it was his desire that the Pope should consecrate the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary with a special mention for Russia. However, even if for his part Pope John Paul has fulfilled Our Lady's demand, it would nevertheless seem that for their part the bishops have yet to comply with the Holy Father's request to act with him in their collegial bond. However, all is not lost, for in his homily on May the 13th, the Holy Father also announced that precisely because the message of Fatima is still more relevant than it was 65 years ago, it is to be the subject of next year's Synod of Bishops, which we are already preparing for. It would seem, therefore, that, at the very least, Pope John Paul II's act of entrusting or consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary of May the 13th, 1982, 
provides all concerned Catholics with a unique opportunity for mobilizing forces so that the 1983 Synod of Bishops may be the occasion for perfecting and finalizing the consecration. We wish to thank the editor of Approaches for allowing us to use material published in two supplements to his 77th edition.